This is Sonia Goldenhand, a Vespucci story, written by Michael Lapointe and narrated by me, Olga Kurilenko. Even the trees appear chained on the island of Sakhalin. Like the people on this rock off the coast of Siberia, they're stunted and sick and lashed with rain. Before entering the prison, Anton casts a glance back at the sea. No sails on the horizon, just a cold and endless grey. He's been on the island for weeks, completing a census of all the convicts in the prison colony. The truth is, he's a writer, and he's come to Sakhalin to expose its conditions. He wants the Russian people to see the atrocity that the Tsar carries out in their name. It's a dangerous mission, but he has nothing to lose. He's seen the spots of blood in his handkerchief. He knows it's tuberculosis and that it's only a matter of time. In the dark hallway, the guard stops outside a cell. This is Sonia Blufstein, he says. The name glimmers in Anton's mind like a vein of gold. Sonia Blufstein? Could it be? The sun never seems to fully rise over Sakhalin, and just a mute light seeps through the little barred window. It's enough to see the roaches on the wall, and it's enough to see the prisoner. Like everyone else across the empire, Anton followed her story in the newspapers. Back then, she seemed too brilliant to be real. Now she's slumped in chains on a straw-covered floor with grey threaded through her tangled hair. But still, there's a power in her eyes. They study him darkly as he kneels beside her. He feels almost shy. She's the first person on Sakhalin who watches as closely as he does. He avoids her eyes and looks at her legs. They're shackled in iron, and he sees the weeping wounds where the metal is eating the flesh. Let me help you, he says, and opens his medical kit. Then he has to turn away, convulsed by a coughing fit. His eyes water, the pain is unbearable. He struggles for breath. Sonia watches him closely. It seems like you're the one in need of help, she says. He dabs his eyes and smiles. The prisoner asks where he's from. He says Moscow. And why would you come here, she says, just to tend to my ankles? No, he says. He's a writer. He wants to write about this place. She asks for his name. Anton Pavlovich Chekhov. She shrugs. I'm afraid your fame has not yet reached this place. But you, Sonia Goldenhand, he says, and their eyes meet. He didn't mean to use that name, but when it escapes... It seems to brighten the cell. Please, he says, tell me your story. Tell me how you ended up in chains. All along Nikolaevsky Boulevard, the trees are heavy with white flowers. They catch the sun of this early May morning and shine like electric light. In the fragrant shade, a woman hurries along the boulevard. She looks like someone from Paris, not Odessa, this provincial city on the edge of the Russian Empire. 
The blue silk dress hugs her body, its large carriage bouncing with her strides. And her dark brown hair is tucked up into a hat decorated with a small songbird. As soon as she enters the jeweler's boutique, he drops what he's doing. He knows wealth when he sees it. He watches her eyes as they study the gems behind the glass. There aren't many women who yawn in front of diamonds, but she does. As if finishing a tiresome chore, she selects an emerald necklace and matching earrings. And almost as an afterthought, she throws some loose diamonds into the order as well. The jeweler nods enthusiastically. He will have the items delivered in a couple of hours. Where can he find her? She gives him the name of her husband and says he will pay up on delivery. Your husband is a doctor? asks the jeweler. A psychologist, she says, and writes down an address in a wealthy suburb of Odessa. An hour later, she's at the address, sitting across the desk from the psychologist, a middle-aged man with a drooping black moustache. He leans forward, his fingers in a steeple, as he listens to this woman relate a most intriguing story. Her husband, she tells him, is a very sick man. He has a nervous ailment that causes him to think everyone owes him money. They can't go anywhere without him accosting total strangers and demanding imaginary payments. The psychologist has never heard of such a problem, but he agrees to help at once. The chance to give his name to a new condition is too alluring. Just be warned, she says. My husband can become violent when he thinks someone is refusing to pay. The psychologist nods and summons his two assistants for protection. A servant enters to announce the arrival of the lady's husband. While the psychologist and his assistants wait, she goes to meet him at the door. It's the jeweler. He smiles, delighted to see his new customer, and hands her a black velvet pouch filled with gems. She thanks him with a casual nod and points to the office door. My husband will see you now, she says. The jeweler touches the brim of his cap and opens the door. He finds the psychologist behind his desk and two assistants at his side. The men speak at the same time. Your wife has excellent taste, the jeweler says. Your wife is very concerned for you, says the psychologist. The jeweler reaches into his pocket and says he has the bill right here. The psychologist makes no response. If you prefer, says the jeweler, we can arrange a course of payments. Still, the man across the desk is silent. Do you hear me, sir? The jeweler says. You owe me 300 rubles. In a few minutes, the peace of the suburb is broken as the psychologist's door bursts open and the two assistants emerge clutching a madman who writhes and screams about gems. A few days later, Sonia is returning home from the baker when she passes a newsstand. The headline of the Odessa leaflet, the city's most popular paper, glares at her in fresh black ink. She pays a few kopecks and reads the issue as she walks, the loaf of bread tucked under her arm. It was an audacious crime, the journalist says. 
A woman made off with hundreds of rubles of jewelry by posing as the wife of two different men, creating such confusion that she slipped away unnoticed. The city of Edessa has never seen anything like it. If crimes were works of art, this would be a masterpiece. She crumples the paper and throws it away, annoyed by how it's blackened her fingers. In the moldy apartment building, she knocks on the door at the top of the stairs. There's no answer. She knocks again, more forcefully. Nothing happens. She smiles and puts the key in the lock. Taba, her 12-year-old daughter, is seated on the threadbare carpet in the middle of the room, playing with a diamond. As she passes it from hand to hand, the gem magically disappears. I knew it was you, Taba says, not looking up. I knew you were testing me. And you passed, she says. Good girl. Taba has a blue scarf tied around her throat. She wears it to conceal the wine-colored birthmark on her chest, embarrassed even here in the privacy of the apartment. Sonia always tells her the mark is shaped like a lion, with its billowing mane and roaring jaw. But Taba still wears a scarf. Now, Sonia kisses Taba on the head and takes the diamond back. It's impossible to hide how she makes a living from her daughter. And anyway, Taba is 12 years old now and seems to see through everything with a sarcastic wisdom. Where did she get that sharp streak from, shut up in apartments like these? Hurry up and eat, Sonia tells her, breaking the steamy bread. We don't want to miss our chance. A few minutes later, mother and daughter emerge from the building holding hands. They catch a horse-drawn tram to a boulevard overlooking the sea, where the opera theater stood before it burned down. There are plans to rebuild it, in grand Italian fashion, and the city has invited Samsonov, the famous composer, for a series of fundraising performances. As soon as she heard of Samsonov's visit, Sonia hatched a plan for her daughter. Taba is blessed with a rare gift, she has the voice of a coloratura soprano, and it's Sonia's dream for her to sing on stage. Maybe Samsonov can make that dream come true. But as soon as they arrive, Sonia realizes that her dream is not unique. There's a saying in Odessa, if a child is not carrying a violin, that means they play piano. A crowd of mothers and their children has gathered around Samsonov's coach. Enough for several orchestras, all seeking an audition with the great composer. At the edge of the crowd, Sonia stands on the tips of her toes, biting her lip. She doesn't realize it, but a man is watching her closely. This charming woman in a plain brown dress has caught his eye. Excuse me, he says. Are you trying to get through? Sonia takes him in at a glance. He's a few years younger and a few inches shorter with reddish hair and fat pink lips. Yes, she says. I can help, he says. Follow me. Sonia can recognize a hopeless situation, so she follows him, still holding Taba by the hand. They loop around the crowd to the other side of the coach, which is being guarded by two policemen. The officers nod at the red-headed man and let them through. Who are you? she asks. Vasily Filipov, he says, 
and waits for a recognition that doesn't come. The journalist, he adds, the Odessa leaflet. Before she can turn away, he opens the carriage door and leans inside. After a moment, he tells her that Samsonov will grant her a few minutes. This is their chance. Taba fixes the scarf around her throat, concealing the lion-shaped birthmark, while at the windows of the carriage, the mothers of Odessa hold their children up like hens in the market. My daughter, Sonia says. She sings. Samsonov grunts. She elbows her daughter. Taba tries a note and it cracks. How nice, he says. Now, goodbye. He reaches for the door. Sonia cries out to wait. My time is very precious. She produces the diamond. His hand freezes on the door. He looks at the diamond in his palm as the girl begins to sing. Her voice fills the carriage as timeless and clear as the depths of the gem. When they emerge from the carriage, Sonia and her daughter rush past the waiting journalist. Hey, Filipov calls. But they've disappeared into the crowd. In Sonia's pocket is a note of introduction to the music conservatory in Moscow. The banker is like a young man again, dazzled by the woman in Café Fanconi. She sits at the marble-topped bar in a peach dress, sipping a champagne cocktail. Risking that she sees his bald spot, the banker removes his hat and introduces himself. To his amazement, the lady asks if he might have change for a hundred-ruble bill. There's a faint accent in her voice. To his ears, it carries an echo of the Mediterranean. She puts the bill on the bar. An extraordinary sum. He laughs and says no. What on earth could she need the money for? The lady says she's leaving for Moscow on the overnight train and would like change for the porters. The banker can't believe his good fortune. He's in Odessa to check on his firm's holding and he's returning to Moscow on the overnight train as well. Summoning what's left of his courage, he asks if she would like to keep him company on the journey. She says she would be delighted and lets him kiss her perfumed hand. My name is Sonia Sandonato, she says, and sweeps out of Café Fanconi. As she leaves, she passes a red-headed man without noticing him. It's Filipov, the journalist, who for the first time in his life is at a loss for words. He's been thinking of the woman and her daughter ever since last week. Now he sees her not in a simple brown dress, but looking like the princess of Spain. And then, once again, she disappears. He approaches the man at the bar, who is dabbing his forehead with a handkerchief, and asks about the woman. A most astonishing creature, says the banker. Her name is Sonia Sandonato, and will be traveling to Moscow tonight. Sonia and Taba arrive early at the station, long before the other passengers. They have cheap tickets, just two hard seats in the rear of the train. But only Taba will use them. Sonia gets her daughter settled by the window and kisses her head. Don't speak to anyone, she says. Taba pulls the scarf around her throat and plays with the pit of a plum, passing it from hand to hand 
and making it disappear. Sonia exits the train and wanders up the platform, twirling a small parasol. In her other hand, she carries a box of white chocolate truffles. Passengers are starting to arrive, and the steam of the engine drifts over the porter's loading luggage. A young widow in black rushes by, dragging her son by the hand and speaking in Yiddish. She and Sonia could not be dressed more differently, and they exchange the glance of two complete strangers. But they're both here at the station for the same reason. Odessa is not safe for them. The last pogrom against the Jews wasn't long ago. It began as a rumor that the Jews had vandalized the church, and suddenly their businesses were being raided, and men were being dragged into the street. Many perished in the violence, yet somehow their blood washed away without a stain. That was the most terrifying thing for Sonia, how the police did nothing, as if the killers had the approval of the Tsar himself. If she ever has to produce her papers, they will mark her as a target. Her name is Sonia Blufstein. She's a Polish Jew. She spent her first ten years in an orphanage. A sudden chill strikes her as she remembers that place. The damp stone wall beside the little bed of lice. It's in her bones forever. But Taba will never be like her. That is Sonia's promise. One day, her daughter will stand before the people in the center of a stage. She sees the banker striding down the platform in a frock coat too small for him. She can tell he's trying to be dashing. And she will let him be as dashing as he likes. She will pull the curtains closed and feed him white chocolate as they race through the night. They link arms and board the first-class carriage, while across the platform, through a haze of steam, the journalist Filipov watches. Late the next morning, the hinges of the cabin door rattle with the pounding. The banker opens his eyes just as the key enters the lock, and three men burst into the room. A porter, a police officer, and a little red-haired man with a notepad. When the banker sits up, an enormous pain twists his guts and splits his skull in half. He doesn't know whether to clutch his belly or his head as the officer explains that the train arrived in Moscow hours ago. Through the pain, the banker glances about the room. The open wallet, the ransacked valise, and the box of white chocolate truffles on the bed, all eaten but one. He groans and wants to vomit at the sound of Filipov's pencil scratching the page. All across the city, the workers pull their copecks for an issue of the Moscow Sheet. For the past few weeks, a new writer has been contributing to this popular newspaper. His name is Vasily Filipov, and he's introduced Moscow to a master criminal. She comes from Odessa, and she's connected to a string of audacious thefts across the empire. It's a sign of respect among thieves to call each other Golden Hand. The term is normally reserved for men, but in the Moscow sheet, Filipov dares to use it. He calls her Sonia Goldenhand, and the people of Moscow are obsessed. The public has been starved for a story like this. Under the rule of the Tsar, secret police are everywhere, exerting an invisible pressure to obey and conform. 
That's why they read the papers, for tales of chaos and disorder, of rebels who refuse to give in. In a quiet little apartment near Sokolniki Park, Sonia is fixing her hair in the mirror and Taba is practicing scales. The letter from the composer Samsonov helped Taba gain acceptance to the conservatory, but the cost is extravagant. That's why Sonia bought the monkey, her new accomplice, a pink-faced creature called Ricardo. He sits in his cage and tears an issue of the Moscow sheet to shreds. Sonia hates the journalist Filipov. Half the stories he writes about her aren't even true, and he always pretends to have some intimate knowledge of her thoughts and feelings, as if she were his former mistress. Sonia recalls the glint in the journalist's eye in the morning they met in Odessa, and supposes that this is his substitute for her affections, to take control of her image in print. That image is of a great hero, but the work is anything but heroic. He should have seen her yesterday when she went into a jeweler's with Ricardo on her shoulder. While she distracted the clerk, the monkey gobbled up a belly full of jams and back at the apartment, she and Taba had the pleasure of waiting for the monkey to squat in his cage and pass a pile of stinky diamonds. She doubts the readers of the Moscow sheet would find that very heroic. And in reality, there are stories that don't fit into the legend Philippe of his building of a ruthless criminal. Like that afternoon at the Laskutnaya Hotel, when she robbed the American woman. Sonia bumped into her in the lobby and they exchanged apologies, the woman never suspecting that her pearls had just slipped from her wrist. But moments later, Sonia made the mistake of looking back and saw the woman embrace her daughter, a girl Taba's age. The image was so beautiful and so lonely that Sonia left the bracelet at the desk muttering that someone must have dropped it. Now Sonia puts on the hat with the songbird, gives herself one last look in the mirror and kisses Taba on the head. Don't answer the door, she says. Taba rolls her eyes. She thinks her mother is working again tonight, but in fact Sonia is meeting someone in Theatre Square. His name is Neville Forsyth. She had been appraising another old man at a cafe when Neville approached and his blonde hair and blue eyes made her forget any possible crime. They spent the afternoon together on the boulevard ring, walking in falling orange leaves. They trade stories. He's the son of a wealthy sugar merchant in Liverpool, spending a year in Moscow to expand the family firm. Sonia told him she was the daughter of a civil servant and felt guilty for her lies. Now, at the door of the Mali Theatre, Neville is waiting. She takes his arm and leans her head on his shoulder, feeling the rare, pleasant sensation of being small and protected. Neville says he has good news for her. Does she recall what she was saying the other day? He's just received word from his father about their plantations in Jamaica. This year's production will be their largest ever. If she invests now, she'll make a fortune. The word glitters in her mind. A fortune. A legitimate fortune. She's been in so many rich men's houses. Men who did nothing more than be born to the right parents and know how to flatter the Tsar. Why doesn't she deserve a fortune like theirs? Enough for Taba's music. Enough to get married. 
enough to put the legend of Sonia Golden Hand to rest. But the fame that Filippov has given her does come with its advantages. On a bright afternoon in September, Sonia is leaving the apartment of a magistrate with the contents of his wife's jewelry box stuffed in her bodice. After she robbed the banker on the train, it became a joke in Moscow to never let your mistress feed your white chocolates. So instead of drugs, she has to count on the depth of the magistrate's sleep. It isn't enough. As she's creeping down the hall, the apartment door swings open and he emerges enormous in his grey underclothes. Their eyes meet. The old judge knows what guilt looks like. Sonia bolts up the stairs to the top floor, the magistrate slouching after her. There's only one escape, the window in the hall. She yanks it open and tests the ledge outside with her foot. It seems insane, but the magistrate is already wheezing up the stairs. She ducks outside and finds herself in a desperate embrace with one of the stone cherubs who decorate the facade of the building. The magistrate's fingers just miss the last of her dress as it slips through the window. He hobbles to the square below, looking for the policeman on patrol. Already the people are gathering to watch the woman as she hugs the neck of the cherub and kicks upward, trying to hook a toe onto the roof. She hears the magistrate shouting, It's Sonia Goldenhand! It's Sonia Goldenhand! But the people don't seem to believe him. Until her toe catches the roof, she hoists herself over the cherub and a few diamonds rain from her bodice. Then there is total pandemonium. The adoring crowd follows as Sonia races across the roof and leaps to the next building, searching for a way to the ground. Finally, she sees a gutter that empties onto a wet alleyway. She clings to it and shimmies down. Her nails are broken, her hair has spilled, the dress is filthy and torn, and suddenly she's looking at a classroom of children. All their little eyes watch as the crazy-looking woman slides past the classroom window. She lands hard on the alley, twisting her ankle, and starts limping away, not knowing when the crowd will catch up. As she's about to turn the corner, a buggy drawn by a mule cuts her off. Sonia? asks the driver. There's no choice but to say yes. Come on, he says. Beneath the canvas, in the back of his buggy, he exposes a mound of coal. Without thinking, she jumps in and he covers her. She hugs her knees, black from head to toe, and the mule wanders through the crowd, like a boat against the current, as it flows in search of Sonia Goldenhand. Filippov's headline in the next issue of the Moscow Sheet declares, The people protect their hero. Tabor reads the article aloud, sitting cross-legged on the carpet, while Ricardo nibbles a prune. It's a well-known fact that our friends, the government censors, prefer to see criminals punished at the end of novels and play, Tabba reads. This has become one of Filippov's signatures, goading the officers of the Tsar, who put their red pens to every newspaper in the name of public morals. Tabba continues reading. So the question remains, how will the story end for Sonia Goldenhand? She glances up at her mother and closes the paper in shame. Don't worry, Sonia says with a kiss on her head. It's only a story, but there are times when she can't tell the difference.
The restaurant windows are foggy in the cold October night. A man with a white-pointed beard strums his guitar as the gypsies dance among the tables. Sonia has been looking forward to this evening, but as soon as she sees Neville, a mysterious dread comes over her. There's already an empty bottle of wine at the table. His blonde hair sticks to his forehead with sweat. And as soon as he opens his mouth, she realizes she's deceived herself yet again. She scarcely hears the words, a fire in Jamaica, a panic at the exchange. She knows she's looking across the table at a fellow con artist. Neville is holding her hand as if to keep her there. She withdraws it and says, tell me the truth. He parts his lips and then his eyes widen. He's felt the blade she's pressing to the inside of his leg. Now the truth emerges. There is no plantation, no family firm. His father is in debtor's prison and Neville does nothing but play cards. That's where he lost her money. A king turned over, he needed a queen, and all her money was swept from the table. Tabba passes a prune from one hand to another, making it disappear, but she's watching her mother at the window. For many nights, Sonia has been sitting there with a look in her eyes that Tabba has never seen before. The look of something final. Even the monkey Ricardo is worried, chewing the tips of his fingers. All of Moscow is wondering what Sonia will do next. Just yesterday, the journalist Filipov published an article predicted that the master thief will strike again soon. He almost sounded desperate, as if he'd hit writer's block. It's time for Taba's lesson at the conservatory, and so she takes her portfolio of musical scores, gives the prune to Ricardo, and kisses her mother goodbye. This is the one time she's allowed to leave the apartment, and she has strict orders to walk the most direct route. But tonight, she cuts through Sokolniki Park to a small shopping district. It isn't late, but the gas lamps are already lit and yellow halos hang about the posts. She tightens her scarf around the birthmark and enters the boutique. The jeweler glances at the girl with the portfolio clutched to her chest. A daughter of wealth, perhaps, or just another student. It's hard to tell. She asks to see some diamonds. The way she examines them speaks to familiarity with gems. But he finds something strange about how she passes them from hand to hand, not looking him in the eye. Then she mutters an apology and leaves. The jeweler shrugs and withdraws the black velvet display. In the cold night, Taba can feel her heartbeat in her throat. She's walking beneath a lamp, about to slip into the dark of the park, when she's violently spun around and faces the cold black eyes of a policeman. The jeweler stands behind him. Search her, he says. The officer throws a portfolio to the ground and tears his scarf away, exposing the line-shaped birthmark. She hides it with a gasp, and her fingernails glitter in the lamplight. The officer grabs her by the wrist. The diamonds are stuck beneath her nails. Who do you think you are, he says. Sonia Goldenhand?
At the police department in the center of the city, officers are smoking around the table, listening to Filipov. The journalist likes to spend his evenings here. Police are always good for a story or two, and he enjoys pretending that he knows something about the whereabouts of Sonia Goldenhand, the criminal who's been eluding them for months. But that charade has been getting him into trouble, and he's cunning enough to know when his luck is running out. Just the other day, he received a visit he hopes never to repeat. Filipov prides himself on being able to describe the features of any person, but these two men were so pitiless and cold. They were agents of some deeper circle, closer to the Tsar himself. The agents, like his readers, didn't seem to grasp the difference between his writing and the truth. Enough, they said. It was time for the story to end. Filipov should tell Sonia to surrender to the authorities. It was impossible to explain that he has no idea where she might be hiding. Ever since that meeting, Filipov has been unable to stop his fingers from trembling as he strikes his matches, lighting one cigarette after another. But sitting around the table in the department, his fingers are perfectly calm. He's just seen the young girl in brass handcuffs. Her face is drained of color, and tears she can't wipe away are sliding down her cheeks. But Filipov would recognize her anywhere. He remembers every detail of that morning in Odessa, the day his career began. Gentlemen, he tells the officers, I have an offer for you. Sonia has gone mad. It began the minute she expected Taba home, and it worsened as she rushed to the conservatory only to be told that her daughter never arrived. Now she's running up every boulevard, grabbing strangers and asking if they've seen a little girl with a portfolio. At last, there is no choice. The Empire's most wanted criminal finds herself outside the police department. She masters her breath and puts a hand on the door, but someone grips her wrist. It is Filipov. He puts a finger to his lips and motions for her to follow him around the corner. Your daughter, he says. She is inside. Sonia turns away, but he stretches her arm. No, he says. They're waiting for you. In the dark, Filipov watches her eyes. They range over the wall of the department with a desperate intelligence, searching for any crack in the stone, anything that might free her daughter. She knows he finally has her, right where he wants her. Yet for an instant, Almost one of goodness, he is overwhelmed with pity and wishes for the tenderness to soothe her. And then, just as quickly, the feeling is gone. But I can help, he says. Listen to me. He offers her a deal. He's arranged it all, like one of his stories. If she lets him lead her into the department and confesses to the crimes, Taba will go free. She has no choice. She has come to the end. The thief and the journalist link arms. The police wagon departs early, its wheels making fresh tracks in the snow. Sonia Blufstein has begun her 10-week journey to the island of Sakhalin. She will spend the rest of her life in exile. On the day of her trial, the people of Moscow overflowed the court and filled the hall and cascaded down the steps outside. 
everyone wanted a glimpse of their hero. And as she was led into the courthouse, snowflakes sticking to her hair, they cried out words of encouragement. But when the magistrate asked for her plea, they fell into a stunned silence. Did she really say it? Guilty? It's impossible. It wasn't the ending they were hoping for. A valiant fight. A daring escape. A rebel who never gives in. Now, through the barred window of the wagon, she sees the people huddled around a newsstand. They're reading the Moscow sheet. A new story has captured their imagination, and maybe it will have the ending they've been longing for. On the floor of the prison cell, the writer Anton Chekhov kneels beside her. He listens closely, trying to remember everything for later. The Tsar never let to see my daughter, Sonia tells him. I've had no word of her, and how many years has it been? He shakes his head, too amazed to count, and suddenly she grips him by the lapel. The strength of her hands is shocking. The guard rushes into the cell, but Anton tells him to stand back. She leans in close, the heavy chains shifting around her. Taber Blufstein, she says. Tell me, have you heard of her? Taber Blufstein. Did she make it to the stage? The writer would give anything to tell her what she wants to hear. But he sadly shakes his head and says no. There are no happy endings. He only knows of one famous soprano. She's filled every concert hall in the Empire. It is said that even the Tsar wept when he heard her sing. But her name is something different. The people call her the Lion for the birthmark on her chest. You've been listening to Paperless, an audio magazine by Vespucci.